Rachel Ray and Bobby Flay. Drive-ins, diners and dives. Meat men, cupcake wars, an iron chef. My favorite, the great food truck race. I'm talking about the Food Network. Started in 1993, today it's available in 96 million American households. When this network first aired, I thought, no way. An entire channel of cooking shows? But I was wrong. Food Network has had amazing staying power, which proves what a huge impact food has on our daily lives. And the same was true in the church at Corinth. In fact, issues involving food had invaded their worship. A major debate had erupted among the Christians in Corinth regarding food and eats. I have no doubt if the Food Network had been around at the time, the Corinthian controversy would have become primetime programming. Imagine tailgate warriors live from Corinth. Or maybe cutthroat kitchen in the church at Corinth. Hey, a messy food fight had started in the church, and Paul steps in to make sure it gets chopped. (laughs) Chapter 8 begins. Now concerning things offered to idols. Now remember, chapter 6 onward, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians had asked him in a previous letter. And one of the questions involved eats and meats. In the ancient world, there were two places you could go and purchase a hamburger. You could go to the local meat market and you could pay premium prices, or you could buy your meat from the pagan temples at a discounted rate. Usually when an animal was sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple, the meat was carved into sections. The fat was offered to the idol. Burning fat over the fire created the most smoke, and the smoke was a symbol of the worshiper's praise and prayers and petitions. The choicest cuts were then given to the priest, and the prime cuts went to the worshiper himself. But a thousand-pound steer nets 430 pounds of retail beef. Out of a single cow, a butcher gets 38 pounds of sirloin, 38 pounds of ribs, 25 pounds of brisket, and 210 pounds of ground round and ground chuck. That's a lot of beef. And we're talking about ancient times before the days of refrigeration. And so, rather than let the leftovers go to waste, the priest would raise money for the temple by selling the meat wholesale in the market or go directly to the public in the temple deli. Much of the meat sold in Corinth came from its pagan temples. That meant that a Christian living in Corinth never really knew if what he was eating had been a sacrifice before it had become a sandwich or a steak. You see, the Corinthian Christians, they weren't idolaters. They had come out of idolatry. They were just shrewd shoppers, coupon clippers. They hated the city's idolatry and the pagan practices that went with it. But they also hated paying too much for ground round. Why not buy it on the cheap? But what was right? Was this right? How can a Christian eat meat that he or she knows has been sacrificed to an idol, actually used in idolatry? 
For many of the Christians, the idea of guilt by association was firmly etched in their minds. If it had been on the devil's platter, could it now be on the grill for God? They just didn't want to make a miscue with barbecue. And this wasn't just an issue for the ancients. Several years ago, I read an article in WorldNet Daily. It was entitled, Was Your Thanksgiving Turkey Sacrificed to Idols? The author reported that America's most popular turkey brand, Butterball, was processing their turkeys according to halal, or Islam Sharia law standards. <laughs> Millions of Americans were eating a Thanksgiving turkey that had been blessed in the name of Allah. The article was dated in, in 2011, and I'm not sure if Butterball has continued the practice, but I wouldn't be surprised. For there are other U.S. companies, KFC, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Subway, that are also marketing halal to Muslims in the U.S. So, what if in your shopping for a Thanksgiving turkey this week, what if the best buy is a butterball? Allah is a false god of Islam. His character, nature, actions, and promises differ from the God of the Bible. Would it matter to you if your turkey had been blessed in the name of Allah? On Thanksgiving Day, you're gathering with fellow, with fellow Christians. You're fellowshipping around the table with other believers in Jesus. You're eating together in gratitude for your many blessings in Christ. The money you save on the turkey, it might even be given to the church. Think about it. Is it okay to buy the butterball? Or would such a purchase make you a turkey in the eyes of God? This was the issue that had divided the church at Corinth. Some Christians said yes. Buy the turkey. Others said no. But everyone in the church was adamant that they were right. Perhaps more important than the debate itself was the haughtiness of their attitude. They were all proud. Paul will deal with their beef, but he first addresses their arrogance. He says in verse 1, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Notice this, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. You know, it's interesting. There, were knowledge on, there was knowledge on both sides of this issue. Christians in the don't do it camp realized the dangers of idolatry. Demonic forces were behind the worship of false gods. Why should a child of God get entangled in practices of questionable origin? That's a good point. Whereas the folks on the go to it side of the argument, knew that idols were nothing. They were just sticks and stones and hunks of wood. The only God is the one true God. False gods don't exist. And meat sacrificed on their altars is just that, a piece of meat. So why not eat? They too made a good point. The don't do it's and the go to it's each had validity. The problem, though, was that both groups failed to recognize the legitimacy of each other's concerns. You see, the church at Corinth was full of proud people. Everyone had the notion, I'm right, and anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. 
There was no middle ground here. No room for shared truths or for common concerns that they could learn from each other. Their knowledge had gone to their heads instead of their hearts. The Little League football helmet that my son used to wear, it had a rubber bladder in the top of the helmet that you would inflate with air. You could stick the needle down through the top of the helmet into the bladder and it would fill up with air, provided his head some extra protection. You'd stick the nozzle right in the top and it was a hole right in the top. Well, I'm afraid that most people have a similar nozzle somewhere on the top of their scalp. Go ahead, put your hand right there and just try to feel your nozzle right there. You got it? (laughs) We learn a little truth and what happens? Go straight to our heads. We learn a little bit and all of a sudden we're right and everybody else is wrong. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul referred to leaven, which is yeast, as a type of sin. And why did he use yeast? Because yeast corrupts by puffing up. And so does sin. It inflates our pride. Realize the most dangerous person in the church is the one who knows just enough to think he knows it all. Be leery of the self-proclaimed expert who feels it's his duty to roam the halls of the church and police the saints. Be leery of that person. He's looking for a fellow Christian who's doing 37 in a 35. He's writing out his own tickets for the smallest infractions. He's all about getting the speck from his brother's eye while there is a two-by-four protruding from his own eye. I love the quote, Some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. Beware of the person who just gargles. Paul says that both camps need to let some air out of their head and punch some love into their hearts. The Corinthians had big heads but small hearts. You recall John, how he introduces his gospel. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And followers of Jesus should be distinguished by those, those same traits. Grace and truth. And truth. It's been said love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. We won't always agree with each other, but we can always love one another. And I love how Paul concludes this in verse 3. He says, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. In other words, the key to a relationship with God, both knowing God and more importantly, being known by God is ultimately what goes on in our hearts, not in our heads. It's all about love. It was the scientist and philosopher Blaise Pascal who wrote, Man's wisdom must be understood to be loved, but God's wisdom must be loved to be understood. It's love that comes first. Then our knowledge grows. Certainly head knowledge has its place. Facts and beliefs are vital to our faith. But academic knowledge alone is not enough to save us. Saving faith has to be heartfelt. As Paul told the, as Philip, I'm sorry, told the Ethiopian, if you believe in Jesus with all your heart, you see, faith involves love, not just logic. Well, Paul returns to his immediate, to the discussion of the immediate problem here in verse 4. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, 
we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Now understand this observation from the Corinthians' perspective. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, we were actually in, standing in the ruins of Corinth. And much of the rubble around us were the posts and the columns and the walls of the various pagan temples that had once adorned the city. You see, the ancient Greeks were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. Corinth even had a temple dedicated to, quote, all the gods. It was just a catch-all for the whole Greek pantheon. In other words, Corinthian society was inundated with idolatry. It colored all of life. Whenever Corinthians gathered, from family get-togethers to civic functions to sporting events, respect was paid to some idol. And before we act smug in our knowledge and dismiss this whole notion of any kind of modern-day idolatry, imagine putting a Corinthian in a time machine and transporting them to the year 2015 to a southern town on a Saturday afternoon on game day. They would immediately conclude that these people are the strangest kind of idolaters. We worship dogs and insects and sacrifice our meat on the tailgates of a thousand pickup trucks, all gathered around the temple to the elephant god. What are these people doing? Hey, our preoccupation with sports or entertainment or career and affluence or anything for that matter can be turned into an idol. Whenever a person gives a peripheral issue primary importance, they are bordering on being idolatrous. If the transported, transported person from ancient Corinth saw only how you live your life, what conclusions would they draw about the God or gods that you worship? And yet the believers in Corinth, they had been liberated by the Holy Spirit from the shackles of their city's idolatry. God had opened their eyes. They now saw the idols that they once worshipped as nothing, as just man-made statutes, inanimate objects. They realized that the system of idolatry that had once enslaved them was a total sham. And Paul even takes it a step further, verse 5. He says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we are for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through Him we live. He's saying that other deities don't exist, but if they did, our Father God and our Lord Jesus Christ would still reign supreme. God the Father created all things. God the Son, our Lord Jesus, sustains all things. We know that idols are nothing, but if pagan gods were real, they would obey and bow down to the Christian God. And I love what Paul says of us in this. He talks about God. We exist. He talks about us as he talks about God. He says, we exist for him. Is that how you see yourself? Do you realize that? The whole reason you exist is for him. He says, we live through Christ. God created us for himself and for his pleasure. This is why your life is like a leaf 
falling on an autumn day, aimlessly falling in the air, randomly blowing in the wind. A person has no rudder, no purpose, until they anchor themselves in God. And we connect to His life, the life that is in the one true God, by bowing to the Lord of all the universe, Jesus Christ. Well, the plot thickens in verse 7. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, the problem was twofold. Their consciousness and their conscience. Some of the Corinthian believers couldn't get beyond deeply held, deeply rooted associations. Their own past made them conscious of the dangers of idolatry. Think of the man or woman who had been immersed in the cult of Aphrodite before they had become Christians. Either they had played the prostitute or they had betrayed their spouse, their wife, by taking a prostitute. These people were now ashamed of what they'd done in the name of that idol. Their former life had left serious scars. In fact, they were so conscious of the dangers that idolatry posed, it was now hard on them to view the idol as, quote, nothing. And I got to tell you, this is how I feel about drinking alcohol. Is a Christian free to drink a glass of wine on occasion? The biblical answer is yes. Moderation is the key. Yet that is a liberty for some, but not for me. For I have also read the Bible's numerous warnings on the subject. Throughout Scripture, we're cautioned about alcohol's destructive possibilities. The Bible is also clear that we should never, ever get drunk. As a pastor, I have counseled too many people who have been ruined by booze. I'm too conscious of the damage it can cause to participate myself. To me, it's just wise to steer clear. I remember going to the hospital once to see a man dying of liver disease. The guy had unnecessarily drunk himself to death. It was awful. He was a yellow bag of bones just clinging on to life. He was miserable. In my 35 years of ministry, I've been doing this a while now, I have seen countless lives and families destroyed by alcohol. Now when I see an open container, I see evil. I know that moderation isn't always easy. And for me, I know my tendencies. I'm pretty impulsive. I'm afraid if I ever started drinking, I might not be able to stop. So why even start? Besides, what can alcohol do for me that Jesus can't? If I'm looking for a buzz or if I need to unwind, I go to the Holy Spirit, man, not distilled spirits. I've personally decided that the rewards aren't worth the risks. But that's not everyone's position, and that I accept. When it comes to alcohol consumption, I'm in the don't do it camp, whereas you might be in the go for it camp. And you have that right. You have that freedom. It's not for me to judge you, and it's certainly not for you to judge me. I admit you're within biblical parameters, And I hope you see that my position is full of biblical wisdom. 
But despite our approaches, we need to love one another. For Paul tells us in verse 8, But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. In other words, we're right with God through faith, not food. The act of eating or drinking or the decision to refrain has zero bearing on our relationship to God. See, I know Christians who are proud of their liberties. They think it's cool to drink a beer or a glass of wine. They see themselves as more enlightened than the teetotaler. Other Christians are proud of their abstinence. They label people who have the freedom to drink on occasion as sellouts. But neither attitude is right. Eaters and non-eaters, drinkers or non-drinkers, have the same status before God if their faith is in Jesus Christ, if they're passionately following Him. See, it is true that just because Satan can use an item, whether that be a piece of meat or a glass of wine or something else for that matter, that doesn't make it intrinsically evil. You remember Jesus said, it's not what goes in a man's mouth that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his heart. God cares more about what's in a person's heart than he does what's in his mouth or in his stomach. Shifting gears a bit, here's another example. Music is a great example. Music is not evil or good intrinsically in and of itself. It's how it's used. Satan can inspire songs that promote evil and lead people astray. But the chords and the instruments that make that music are the same notes that other people play to praise God. A musical score isn't evil in and of itself. It's the motive behind the music that matters. An A chord is amoral. Whether it's used for God's glory or to incite rebellion is determined by the intent of the musician. The same is true of dancing or tobacco or fashion, or gambling, or movies, or a thousand other issues that can cause controversy. Just because Satan used it on you doesn't defile it for me. Here's another example. Both Easter and Christmas have pagan origins. I mean, the Roman church incorporated Christian elements into what were pagan festivals. But does this impact our celebrations today? Not mine. I mean, unless you were once in a Celtic nature cult and worshipped evergreen trees as fertility symbols, I doubt that's how you're going to interpret my Christmas tree. (laughs) Jesus is the light of the world. His love is everlasting. That's what the lights and limbs on my tree convey. You see, some matters aren't black or white. They're just gray. It's up to each Christian to decide for themselves in accordance with their own conscience and their own sense of right and wrong what their involvement should be. In 1928, famous pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse, he spoke at a Bible conference attended by 200 young people and some prudish counselors. One afternoon, some of the older women, they approached Barnhouse, they approached him, they were upset about the appalling, sinful, wicked practices going on among the girls. You won't believe this, but these young girls were walking around the camp without stockings. These petty old ladies, 
They wanted the good preacher to rebuke this supposed spirit of compromise in the church. Dr. Barnhouse writes about the incident. Looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, She didn't? I answered, In Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. Obviously, his answer stifled the protest and made them rethink their issue. A Christian living in America may take offense when his German brother downs a beer, while the German believer is appalled when an American sister wears a two-piece swimsuit to the beach. Both are offended. I know Christians who would never feel right about wearing shorts into a church building, but they don't mind lighting up a cigarette out front of the church on the steps. Like meat sacrificed to idols, cultural taboos are a moving target. They alter from place to place and from tribe to tribe and from generation to generation. We need to remember that meat is nothing but meat. It's the attitude behind the use of it that varies from conscience to conscience, from consciousness to consciousness that matters. My past associations in my current conscience is not your master. And your experience in conscience is not my master. Jesus is the only master. And in these gray matters, we should follow him. I like what Mark Twain once said. The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but they know so many things that ain't so. And this applies to church people. Many of us have been trained by the wrong teachers by legalism, or by tradition, or by rebellion, or by just plain ignorance. What informs your conscience? You see, the Pharisees were enamored by concerns that were just a blip on God's radar. Tithing spices, and washing their hands, and actually counting the exact number of steps they walked on the Sabbath day, as if God cared about these issues more than integrity, and purity, and compassion. As Christians, we're called on to love God and to love people, to walk by faith and to be led by the Holy Spirit, to to do all that we do to the glory of God. Certainly, it's easier just to follow some rules. You don't have to think. You don't have to make choices. You don't have to discern if you're following rules. But God expects more from us. He wants us to walk in His Spirit. Paul taught the Corinthians to never violate their conscience, but at the same time, they needed to retrain their conscience according to the truth, not just tradition. Verse 9 tells us, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? Now first, you need to understand there is a difference between the legalist and the weaker brother. Paul is talking about two different people. A legalist is the person armed with a list of do's and don'ts. They have listened to tradition or they've gleaned from rituals and religious laws or maybe they've taken their cue from an overworked conscience 
And they've drawn up a game plan by which they and others can earn God's favor. It's all about their grunt and their goodness. And the legalist isn't content to live in his own futility. No, he's determined to impose his standards on others. This is not the person that Paul is concerned about. In fact, this legalist needs to be confronted. He needs to be rebuked. True righteousness is never self-righteousness. A person becomes right with God by faith and faith alone. You don't worry about stumbling the legalist. If he or she refuses to repent, you just throw them out on their ear. Here, though, Paul is thinking of a different dude. He's talking about the weaker brother. This guy has faith. It's just undeveloped. He hasn't muscled up his faith yet. It's still weak. It's tentative. He believes in God's grace. He's recognized how serious God is in extending it. It cost God his only son. He has tasted grace. He just hasn't tested grace. Not yet. Imagine an ice skater in Michigan. He's headed to the frozen pond for the first skate of the winter. Now fall is just behind him. Winter's just begun. He laces on his skates. He steps onto the ice. Oh, but he's cautious. He skates around gingerly. He wants to be certain that the ice is strong enough to support his weight. Well, this is the weaker brother. He has trusted in God's grace. He is relying on the work of Christ, not his own. But then he recalls a sin that he's yet to confess. Or he's tempted by some weakness that causes him to doubt. Or he's weighed down by some problem. And he wonders if this ice he's standing on can hold him. His insecurity, his tentativeness isn't a threat to anybody else. The weaker brother just has a weaker faith. He's the one who's vulnerable to doubt and to a collapse of his faith if he gets too scared of this ice and whether it can hold him. The weaker Christian is learning that his faith in Jesus will hold him up. Christ is the ice that won't crack. But what if in the process of learning that, he gets confused by a fellow believer who sends him mixed signals that contradict his growing faith. Take, for example, the former pagan in Corinth. He's turned his back on idols. He's serving the Lord now. Oh, he used to absolve his conscience from sin by going down to the temple of Apollo and offering a a dove or a lamb on the altar. Now he's broken himself from that habit. He's free from that. Rather than bringing his sacrifice to the pagan temple, he now goes down to a house on Main Street and he meets with the believers in the basement of the house. Instead of sacrificing a dove, he's now singing a sacrifice of praise. Jesus is the sacrifice he's trusting in now. It's all true. But this is a big adjustment for this new believer. You understand that? He's been doing this his whole life. Now he's coming out of it. It's a big adjustment. And if in the process of making that adjustment, he sees his buddy Dimitri. Dimitri's the Christian who led him to Christ. He's the guy he looks up to now. And he sees Dimitri at the temple eating in the Apollo Deli. Oh my. What will he assume? Well, if Dimitri goes there, why can't I? Man, I used to love those steak sandwiches. And I wouldn't mind seeing some old friends. 
And I'd be covering all my bases just in case they might be something to worshiping that idol. Sadly, because Dimitri felt at liberty to eat the tainted meat, a new believer might end up right back in the bondage from which Christ had set them free. And if you had asked Dimitri what he was doing down at the temple, he would have assured you it had nothing to do with idolatry. He'd been to his niece's wedding. Or a business luncheon maybe. Or, or maybe his friend's kid had had a preschool program that morning. And while he was there, he knew his wife was out, so he just happened to pick up a barbecue plate. I mean, it was just convenient. It was on his way out. But that's not the message that he sent now to the weaker brother. He's now given another Christian an excuse to doubt and to justify a compromise. He has to be more careful. What was nothing to Dimitri has now undermined another brother's faith. And this needs to be every believer's consideration. We're all free to exercise our liberty in these gray matters, but we're not free to cause another brother's faith to stumble. I have an obligation to support my brother's faith, not sabotage and create confusion. Remember what we talked about earlier? It's all about love. This is another reason that I don't drink alcohol. In fact, whenever I go to a restaurant, I try to avoid being seated in the bar section of the restaurant. Because I don't want somebody strolling into Longhorns and seeing Pastor Sandy seated over near the bar and assume, well, if Pastor Sandy needs happy hour to be happy, then maybe I do too. And just like that, no, just like that, totally unintended by me, a person who has escaped an addiction can get trapped back in it just like that. God forbid that another brother in Christ for whom Christ himself died ends up spiraling into sin and perishing due to me. Certainly, don't remain weak in your faith. Retrain your conscience to live according to God's truth, not legalism or tradition. Live by faith and faith alone. But also, don't live by some reckless version of liberty where you do as you please with no regard to the people around you that you know are Christians and that you know are watching you. Don't you dare take the attitude, well, I answer to God and God alone. I don't care what anybody else thinks. You should care. You should care what they think. You remember verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And as Christians, we are called to love. Logically, you know that meat is just meat, wine is just wine, music is just music, a game is just a game. But to a younger Christian with a weaker faith, what he eats or drinks or listens to or plays may still be a deciding issue in who he follows and in how he lives. Logic shouldn't be your only guide. What about love? Here's the greatest danger. A Christian who knows a lot but has no love can become so right they become wrong. Insist on your liberty, knowing it will lead another brother astray, and what was right for you has now become a sin for you. It might be fine for you to drink a beer or to go dancing 
or to listen to certain types of music. You've grown in Christ. You're confident of where you stand. You've developed a strong discernment and restraint. But what if, if, but if what you're doing might lead a weaker brother down the same path, then that is a sin for you to take that risk. See, here's the test. You're free to pick it up only if you're free to put it down. If it's more important to you than your brother, loving your brother, then that's a sin. If what you do harms a weaker brother, then love says, don't do it. In 2005, Ben Roethlisberger was an emerging star in the NFL. The Steeler quarterback was showing big potential. In July of that year, an ESPN interviewer asked Ben why he had been riding his motorcycle without a helmet. Why take such an enormous risk? The young Pittsburgh resident said, because you don't have to. It's not the law. If it was the law, I'd definitely have one on every time I rode. You're just more free when you're out there with no helmet on. Sadly, less than a year later, in June of the next year, Ben was in a serious motorcycle accident. Roethlisberger was hit in an intersection. He was thrown through a car's windshield. Emergency surgeons spent more than seven hours repairing Roethlisberger's broken jaw, his fractured skull, some missing teeth, and several other facial injuries. After his release from the hospital, Roethlisberger issued an apology to his fans and his family and even his team for risking his life so unnecessarily. Ben was quoted as saying, In the past few days, I've gained a new perspective on life. By the grace of God, I'm fortunate to be alive. And then he added, If I ever do ride a motorcycle again, I'll certainly be with a helmet. See, his focus was no longer on enjoying his individual freedom. It was on the welfare of others. And this was Paul's word to the Corinthians. It's not just about you. It's time that you saw the bigger picture. That you cared about the other people around you. Now, I have to admit that for years, I tried to make a point of my freedom in Christ. I love to shock people. I was raised in a tradition where Christians dressed up to go to church. The idea was to wear your best for God. But the notion was more traditional than it was biblical. And when we started Calvary Chapel, I went to the opposite extreme. Deliberately so. On Sunday mornings, I would wear flip-flops. And I had this black shirt that had pink flamingos all over it. Kind of like a Hawaiian type shirt thing. So I wear flip-flops, blue jeans, and my black shirt with pink flamingos. I wore this like every every other week. And it was nothing but me flaunting my freedom. I did it just because I could. And I wonder now how many traditional type people ended up not coming to Calvary Chapel and getting the teaching that they needed because of my flip flops. I'm ashamed of it now. It was immature on my part. I wasn't looking at the bigger picture. Don't be some kind of Christian shock jock. Yes, we have great freedom in Christ, but a mature believer will use his or her freedom for the glory of God and for the love of other people. 
Over the years, I've learned there's one thing more vital than making a point, and that's winning a brother. And this is what Paul tells us here in verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now that's a serious sentence. A sin against Christ? But you think about it. If what you do causes a believer to stumble, the believer that Jesus died to save, aren't you interfering with the work of Christ? Aren't you undermining the cross of Christ? It's nothing less than a sin against Christ. Paul concludes, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Notice the extent to which Paul is willing to love. He will never again eat meat? Imagine the meat lovers in this church saying, okay, we'll give up that barbecue brisket that we love and that pulled pork and that juicy ribs and and we'll even say goodbye to that spicy chili we have two, three times a year. I mean, can you imagine? Us saying, if this is what it takes to avoid stumbling a brother, we'll just have a vegetarian wonderful Sunday. Can you imagine? Now that would be some serious commitment. Hey, let's not stumble people. Jesus died to make stand. Let's love one another at all costs. To sin against the weaker brother is to sin against Christ. So we have knowledge. Now, let's walk in love.